Welcome to season seven of the Leadership Educator Podcast, your source for knowledge and expertise on facilitating leadership learning. Are you passionate about leadership education? Do you want to expand your resource toolbox with practical strategies for teaching, learning, and program design? Then this is the podcast for you. If you haven't done so already, please hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Welcome to the Leadership Educator Podcast. I am Lauren Bullock, Assistant Professor of Instruction at Temple University. And I'm Dan Jenkins, Professor of Leadership and Organizational Studies at the University of Southern Maine. And we're very excited about this episode of the Leadership Educator Podcast. So in our seventh season, we've shifted our focus a bit to advancing the leadership education community of practice through exploring some exemplary mentor-mentee relationships in the field. And we've also learned from some scholars who write and speak and develop mentor programs Uh, mostly in the context of higher education. And we've been asking the question, how do mentors help leadership educators who design and facilitate leadership programs, conduct research and and teach, or perhaps are graduate students? And so today we're talking with Dr. Jonathan Orsini. He's the director of online programs at the University of Florida about his co-authored work on mentoring doctoral students. He co-wrote the article, Leaders and Scholars, How Faculty Mentoring Behavior Influences the Development of Leadership Self-Efficacy in the Journal of Leadership Education with Dr. Natalie Kors, who cannot be with us today. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we're excited to jump into the conversation and and specifically, so just to share a little bit of context of for the conversation. So we've had a PhD program here at the University of Southern Maine. Uh, we just welcomed our third class of students this fall. Um, it's a low residency online program. We, I, I got to uh, be a part of the design and, and proposal process, which I think we started way back in like 2016, 2017, but we all know how things work so quickly, the processes in higher education. There's there's no bureaucracy, you know, things get approved very quickly, just like private business. Um, but in any case, um, so, uh, but being a part of that, so we kind of have a cohort model, although sometimes we kind of shy away from that because some students come in with different amounts of coursework. We're pretty transfer friendly to a point. We do have a handful of students that completed our master's program that are our PhD students as well, but it's probably more like 80-20 now as we've got welcomed our third class of students. We've got many more students from other that did their other graduate or undergraduate coursework at other universities. And so this study was of particular interest, right? Our students in their third year will take their comprehensive exams in the spring. They are in the process of choosing their faculty chairs for their dissertation committees and as well as the other uh, committee members. They're looking towards completing their proposals and defending their proposals next summer. They're going to take their last methods course in the spring. So we're like right in the thick of that. And we've played around with a couple different models for mentoring and supporting student needs through both during the residency for sure. But speaking about that mentor-mentee relationship, that more one-on-one, we've done some things like having like a a faculty scholar assigned to a student. Like I'm working with two of our third-year doc students right now, where we'll just go out and have dinner or lunch or maybe grab a beer or something and just kind of chat about how their research is going and how they're, what they're thinking about for their dissertation topic. But I know that that's going to become more formalized soon. However, it doesn't mean that your dissertation chair is the only mentor-mentee relationship that you should have as a doctoral student, right? There's so many different relationships that, that you might have. And, you know, I, I still think very fondly of the faculty that took an interest in me or what have you and provided some mentorship for me when I was a doctoral student. And, you know, that's kind of the 
context I'm coming from. And Lauren, you're you're in a slightly different setting, right? Would you mind just setting some context there? Yeah, so I'm on the, the opposite side. I am in, I'm writing chapter two and I'm making really good progress. And I have a great um, mentor and advisor. My chair is wonderful. And even the, the people on my committee are, are wonderful. And so on the, the flip side, it, it's it's nice to, to get, um, the perspective of my mentor and advisor. And it was nice to read some of the comments in the article. I can't wait um, to, to get into it a little bit more. Um, but but in my program, it's low residency um, for three years. And then after that, you go into, well, if you've finished your projects, you go into candidacy and then you write until you complete it. I am lovingly on year six. So I've been doing this for a while, but I'm, I'm closer definitely to the end than I am um, to the beginning for sure. Um, but in my program, it was interesting because a lot of our contact was already like online. And so I'd, I'd be interested in kind of hearing about like the face-to-face -face aspect or seeing more research about face-to-face. -face. Most of my contact I've looked since the beginning of my program, I've looked at my chair through Zoom. And so there are just some interesting things that I've pulled out that I can't wait for us to get into. But but that's my program, low residency. Um, so we meet three to four times a year. And then during candidacy, your engagement is primarily online. So, and our, we have, we have a cohort model. There's about 30 to 35 people in the cohort. Um, and then in terms of just graduation, some people graduated, you know, right after year four and some people are still working. So there's a little background on our program. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. And even if, yeah. And so it's interesting how similar kind of the program that you're completing, Lauren, and, and the program I teach in are in, in our program. Mostly it's the online classes, though. We do have a mix of synchronous and asynchronous. And there are some courses, students that are in the greater Portland main area can come and actually attend in, in person that are hybrid with with the Zoom folks. But but Jonathan, what can you tell us a little bit about your context there in the doctoral program that you recently completed and, and kind of the the nature of, of that? And I know Lauren's uh, got a question to kind of start us off. And you know we're just and, and that is why we're just we have a very particular interest in in this study. And I can't wait to, to dive into this with you. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess a little bit of background about me. So I I'm not I wasn't a traditional uh, PhD student. I didn't go back in uh, and, you know, until I was uh, a bit older, uh, I had completed my master's back in um, the, the late 2000s. And then I, I was working full time in, in higher ed. My entire career has really been in, in, in higher ed. Uh, and so uh, I think it's important to understand my context. So I was working, I worked with a lot of students, graduate students, professional students. And, and so I saw a lot the impact uh, that you could, that effective mentors had on students. And I saw also the impact that ineffective mentors had on their students. And I'm using that term mentor loosely right now. Really, I'm, I'm referring to faculty advisors who are not always actually in a, not actually always mentoring, um, but we wish they would be. Anyway, so that was my context. And so really that's what drove me to go back and pursue my, my PhD was, you know, I was just deeply interested in, in these relationships and how they were so powerful in, in, in moving people forward. And so I ended up joining the leadership program at, uh, at the University of Florida in the Department of Agriculture, Education, Communication. And I was very fortunate to have a very strong faculty advisor, who I think everybody in leadership knows, Dr. Nicole Stedman. Uh, I don't think I, I've yet to meet someone that doesn't have some idea who she is. And so it was, I was very fortunate in that regard. And our program was, um, you know, for it's my understanding that it's a highly respected leadership program around the country. Uh, it's all, you know, we're expected to be there every day, highly face to face. Um, they bring in new students every fall, spring and summer. And, but it was a really strong, it was, it was a really strong uh, student group with a very strong student leadership. They had a student leadership organization. 
um, that was very active. And it was just really just a really excellent experience. You hear, I mean, from what I had seen on the as a full-time staff member, I was really apprehensive going back to get my PhD, but the, the program was so strong, the faculty were so good when I came in, it was just a really positive experience for me there. And I think the other thing to point out is that I got more involved hearing stories about people's uh, experiences in their PhD program because I served as the, and there's a funny story to this that probably isn't meant for, for this call, but I ended up becoming the, the vice president and then president of the graduate student council at the University of Florida, somewhat by accident. And, um, and so I then got involved in a lot in hearing a lot more stories from people's experiences in their PhD programs, you know, many of which uh, were not positive. So it really that hearing those stories that aren't the greatest are really what has motivated me to continue doing research in this in this space. Uh, so that's just a little bit of background. Thank you so much for sharing that. It made me think about a whole bunch of other questions that I wanted to ask. Like, I, I wonder what a, a doctoral graduate student, you know, organization looks like. I just give you some context. My for ten years, I was in student affairs and, and mostly in student activities. And so, when I think of like organizations, you know, I advise the the Hoot Paranormal Club, the the group that they like going on like ghost hunts and stuff like fun stuff like that. Um, you know, in thinking about that, it makes a lot of sense that you wanted to pursue this line. What made you and Natalie decide to write on this topic specifically? So, you know, this is, and I think it's important to talk about effective mentoring, even in the story of how this paper came to be, because this paper wasn't really specifically tied to my dissertation. This is a side project all the way. And, and so one of the great things about my advisor is that uh, she really provided me a solid foundation of support to go off and do my own thing. So I had questions uh, that I really wanted to investigate about how people evaluated good or bad mentoring. And I wanted to tie it to a number, but I also wanted to see, like I saw all these people engaging in, in, in leadership activity or behaviors in the grad student council. And so, but not all of the, some of them had good, you know, they would, you know, say, oh, my advisor's great. Some of them would say, oh my gosh, my advisor's a nightmare, but they were all still there. So I was kind of interested in what factors contributed to convincing somebody to participate in, in, in you know, graduate student leadership while they're pursuing a, a PhD or, uh, and so, uh, that's really what led me uh, down this path. And so, again, because Nicole has excellent connections, she suggested, you know, you know, Natalie had, uh, you know, basically uh, built this model that explained uh, the development of leadership self-efficacy, and she thought it would be a, a great fit for what I was looking at. And so that's how Natalie and I came together. And and Natalie, man, I wish she could be here because I was, you know, I, I was going, I was a pretty fresh PhD student at this time. I was firing off in so many different directions, and she really helped ground me. And help me to like I, I came in I was like I have 50 potential questions I want to ask in the interview portion <laughs> you know and so she got me down to I think the the 13 or 14 that we ended up uh, having for those for those interviews and, and really helped really helped set the foundation for a solid study and without without having Natalie come into that process this that article never makes it into Joel. So I'm curious too. So you, you mentioned that that leadership model that you know the Natalie had a hand in and designing with that. It's interesting because thinking about how do doctoral programs align their like educational activities with the best practices of leadership education? Meaning, like, do we practice what we preach, particularly in leadership programs? How did you see that? <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. So this is really interesting, and we're we're kind of jumping ahead here to I guess you know where I got to like years later after doing this study, but. Like in this, so for no one teaches leadership, right? There's no one teaching leadership in PhD programs. Uh, I, interestingly, you know, I would argue that even in a leadership program outside of the actual coursework that teaches leadership, they're not doing a lot to teach leadership, which is actually 
I think something that we're really missing because something that's really important in this leadership experience is people being able to identify as leaders. And so in this study, for example, and I'm, and I'm jumping ahead to this, there were so many times that people would describe leadership behavior. But then when I was talking to them about it, they wouldn't describe themselves as leaders or even those behaviors as leadership behaviors. And it's because they didn't identify as a leader. It all comes back to that idea of leader identity development. And um, because they didn't identify that way, none of their experiences were leadership. Therefore, they, they didn't. And a lot of this was they just weren't reflecting on what they were doing. And so I think they're if you want to think about how you could you could build in effective leadership into leadership development into PhD programs, you just have to have people to to talk to about it and like reflect on what you're doing and talk about how it is leadership and and I think it's so it's so important. I mean, we expect people that get their PhDs after they graduate to go out and be be in charge, be leaders, be be leaders in their field or leaders in research or leaders in the classroom, but we don't actually ever explicitly teach them how or really reflect on how. You know, even people that are in these positions of leadership that I was talking to, you know, they were working with their with their student cohorts, they were helping their fellow students, like really being great organizational citizens and just not seeing it that way. Now, I love that you share that because so I look at I'm interested in faculty student interaction. And one of the things that that kind of rubs me the wrong way is I, I was going to these like workshops and I, I did a certificate program here at my university and nobody was talking about the relationships that existed between faculty and students. And, and I kept coming back to this question, like, do faculty members really see themselves as leaders? And there's a great book and it, it's kind of like a how-to or it's just like, I don't know if it's an encyclopedia, but it's got all these small chapters on different topics related to um, academia. And one of the chapters is when we talk about leadership, we only talk about leadership in the role of the chair or like someone moving into an administrative position, like a, a dean or a vice dean. And and in there is where I feel like we're really missing the the mark. And I feel like leadership educators naturally do it because they know they have to model good leadership practices, but there's no intentional development around how do you operate as a classroom leader where you're pairing, intentionally pairing leadership practices with, um, you know, classroom behavior and like being in the classroom. So like, I feel like I've been thinking this for a while and even to some extent writing about it, but you bring up such a great point. Like if we could could teach faculty how to truly view themselves as classroom leaders and then do the work that a leader at, you know, AT&T or Comcast or any, you know, positional leader has to do, I feel like it would fundamentally change, you know, like teaching now in higher education. And then to a larger extent, I feel like that's the change we need in higher education. I'll yeah. step off my pedestal right now yeah. or my, my I, box. Yeah, I just I just really want to I just agree with you so strongly there. And I just want to give a shout out uh, on, on something that we've been researching to Dr. Hannah Sunderman. Uh, we've been working on uh, looking at uh, the intersection of leadership, identity development and meaning making. And I think the important thing to say here is that, you know, again, how we make meaning of our experiences is so important to our development. And because we don't explicitly talk about this in Ph.D. programs, people aren't making meaning of their experiences as, as you know, the, to develop their leadership. So. I will, I will lovingly though push back. Like I go to, I'm at Antioch and our first like assignment is this really deep fundamental like dive into who are you as a leader and how did you get there? And, and we do it on the front end. And then on the back end, you write a like a reflective paper and it's almost like the back end. Like, so you, you wrote this on the front side, who are you now? And what are some of the things you're taking away? So like in our program, we, we do do it, but you're right in that in just the broader scale 
I don't know that we're really putting those activities in practice. And then like on our side, we talk, like I talk about them with my, my chair, but there's not a conversation I have with my cohort about kind of both of those pieces, the front piece and the back end piece. So like there's at least one program, Antioch's Change Management PhD. That's good to hear. You all found some interesting things from your data, kind of a good and bad and ugly, right? And it seems that, so student, you mentioned, and I might be quoting directly here that uh, students in doctoral programs, they experience significant negative emotional arousal in the form of uncertainty, anxiety, and self-doubt. And faculty mentors that are accessible, trustworthy, and provide constructive feedback, they can have a hand in mitigating those negative feelings and encourage the development of leadership self-efficacy through verbal support uh, and mastery experiences. And then also, y'all found that uh, active student cohorts and effective departmental leadership, which kind of go back to Lauren's point in the conversation y'all were just having, are also important to the development of doctoral student leadership uh, self-efficacy. Can you tell us a little bit more about those findings and kind of what it means specifically for faculty and students in doctoral programs? Sure. And man, there's so much to, to break down there. And I'm, I'm going to I'm gonna start on the student cohort and the department side first, because I probably won't go off on as much of a tangent if I start there. Um, so what I found, and this was really interesting. So I, I really thought that, um, you know, the faculty advisor was going to be really the most influential per, like, part of this uh, in developing leadership self-efficacy for, for PhD students. But really, it was their student cohorts and uh, effective department leadership that were the most important. And there, the reason for that was, well, if you had effective department leadership, what you typically saw was more faculty working together, greater collaboration, and that built better student communities. Like there was a connection there. Uh, and then the, 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 the strong student communities just were, were more active. So you had more opportunities to, you know, to actually practice leadership behaviors uh, and to support your group and work together. And so that's why that was so important. And so there was uh, there was one person, and I, and I think this quote made it into the paper, actually, where they talked about how their faculty advisor even said, nah, don't participate in student clubs and stuff. It's a waste of time. But because their, you know, their cohort was such a strong cohort, they were like, nah, you should definitely do this. We need you. It'll be a big help. And, and that was a really great experience for them. And so they, they really ignored you know, what their advisor had said on that and, and actually took their, their guidance on that from their student cohort. Uh, what's interesting, you know, so I would say that you could have, while a faculty advisor can be very influential in other ways, specifically in the more broader general context of leadership self-efficacy, like the cohort, your student cohorts in the department were more important. Um, I th there's this interesting connection though, because if you have enough of a sort of dysfunctional leadership environment, so you have the, the faculty don't work together, they don't get along, they don't communicate, uh, that has a tendency to trickle down into the student cohort and the student cohort can become uh, a bit weaker. And then, you know, so then you get like maybe the, the worst possible scenario, maybe you get a faculty advisor that you're not connecting with, you have poor department, you know, poor department leadership environment, and then a weak student cohort. And those are the students that seem to be like the least competent in engaging. Uh, and, and so I think that uh, now on the other side of this thing, you know, having faculty that are present, I mean, this has just been, uh, so, and I've continued to see this in, in research that I've done, and I, I have stuff that's submitted right now, but like just faculty being like just present, and it doesn't even have to be physically present. I think the presence can exist. It could just be via Zoom, just regularly checking in is just so important uh, in the sense that it just helps to just keep, because like, the stress level is essentially so high in PhD programs for most students, and people struggle so much with feelings of competence 
Okay. And I've read some really cool papers about this competence, uh, you know, and I, I can give you this citation later. Um, so some people in 2015 reported that competence was like the, the biggest predictive variable in people's intention to drop out from PhD programs. So if they didn't feel competent, they would leave PhD programs. Uh, but what's interesting is that uh, faculty could mitigate that level of competence that, you know, by be, you know, having faculty that were there and talking to you, that could give you access to, to great research experiences, you know, that would then give you feedback on those experiences and teach you and make you feel better. That improves people's feelings of competence. And, you know, so therefore people feel less likely that they don't belong there. You know, and this connects to feelings of like the imposter syndrome, uh, you know, so that, that seems to be so prevalent right now in academia, you know, it's such a frustrating feeling. Like, I mean, I've read a lot about it and even, even today I still feel it and it's frustrating. Like I know I shouldn't be feeling this, but it's there anyway. Um, so I think that just having that regular presence is just so important to the student faculty relationship and the PhD program. And it can really, it can really make or break the whole experience. Uh, interestingly, I did, I, I had, I did some research later that if you have a faculty member that's, there's like a base level of professionalism that you have to perceive. And if, as long as a faculty member clears that hurdle, you, you want them around, you want them involved with you and you and your work. And if they are involved, um, you're going to have more access to potential mastery experiences. You're going to get more, uh, more positive verbal persuasion. And it just has this tendency to lower your, you know, your arousal about the ups and downs of, of the PhD program. One of the things we, I mean, in faculty experience it too, right? The imposter syndrome and that, that, right. that piece about the, the, um, the competence I, that definitely echoes with me and, and the conversations I've had with many of our doctoral students. You know, it's, it's interesting. So we just returning from the, uh, the ILA Global Conference and uh, we were just uh, over the moon that we were able to bring, we had 20 students from our institution, 19 grad students and one undergrad that, that uh, participated. It's the most we've ever brought from our institution. And our entire first cohort was able to all go which was really, really cool. Um, they're a smaller cohort, you know, as first cohorts uh, sometimes can be in a new program. And the last night of the uh, a conference, um, th they kept saying, oh, damn, we want to we want to we want to go out and have a couple drinks with you, please. But, you know, like really kind of push it on. Like, OK, fine. All right, we'll, we'll do this. Right. And so okay. met them out. And one of our master students also joined us. And then uh, a colleague uh, of ours uh, who also used to teach at uh, University of Florida was was also there. And uh, it was, you know, I was chatting with this this uh, master student who is uh, a veteran and uh, and works for the federal government now. And he said, "Hey, you know, this was a couple of days afterward." He says uh, at, during an advising appointment, and he says, "You know, I, I I one of the things I want to comment on." I said, "He said I had a great time. Thank you so much for including me because that was kind of like a closed group, right? You know, mm -hmm. it was the first cohort." He says, "You can tell that those folks have they they've gone through it together." I'm like, "What do you mean?" He goes, "He goes, you know, it was like they all went through boot camp together. They had that sense." of like cohesion and like just like a tribal, you know, behaviors that they were, they knew so much about each other. They were like protective of each other. You know, it was just like a really interesting to see how that cohesion had evolved for them because of what they had been through together. And that first group really, I was the uh, chair of the department during the first two cohorts. I recently transitioned out of that role, but I spent a ton of time because I was also supervising the graduate assistants that were doctoral students. And they were, we were trying to figure this out together. We're building the plane as we're flying it during that first year, particularly that first semester and trying to figure out, they uh, said, Hey, you know, we, we really think we need to have regular cohort meetings. How does that sound? I said, that sounds great. Y'all need to do that. 
Why don't y'all set up a Zoom meeting every every month? And they said, oh, we're going to do it every two weeks. Perfect. Great. Then we got to a point in the semester where they said, you know, we really need to talk to the faculty. Is that okay? Yeah, of course. That's okay. We didn't, we hadn't thought about that. Uh, what do you all want to talk about? Set the agenda, you know? Right. And so we've, we've evolved to this place now where the GAs that are doc students, they have this responsibility of setting up meetings for all cohorts and setting up meetings uh, too with faculty. Sometimes they're just like town hall style. And sometimes it's like, hey, can this faculty member come in and talk about their research or this faculty member come in and talk about creating a good proposal for a conference or some esoteric area of research or, or theory sure. or whatever. But we found that to your point, all of those things make such a difference in like the social capacity and the familial aspect of creating. It's not just good coursework, right? Yeah. You know, good feedback on papers. I mean, all those things are important too, but it sounds like what you all found is you know, I have some uh, anecdotal evidence to say, yeah, that stuff makes a huge difference in the lives of these students in particular. Yeah. I mean, listen, that just makes complete sense to me. And, and I mean, I, I know, you know, I've known faculty, brilliant faculty, you know, good people, especially when you have them sitting across the table from you, but that just really struggle with having, you know, presence, you know, they, they tend to be all over the place. So it's, sometimes it's hard to nail them down when you're one of their grad students. And uh, it, it can really just, just that not being present uh, can really, just really derail uh you know, faculty, PhD student relationships. So I, 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 so I have a lot of anecdotal evidence that go along with that. I feel like I now actually have data that supports it too, not just from, from this study, but the others that are in, in the tube. So I think, I mean, I just think it's a big deal. Also, it's, it's one of, this is why mentoring is so important. What's interesting is I, in my dissertation, um, uh, I was asking, I, I was looking, I was asking faculty what some of the I was trying to determine what the biggest predictors were for faculty self-evaluations of their mentoring confidence. Okay. And the most important predictor was discipline or, or their discipline self-efficacy. So essentially how confident they felt in being able to do their jobs as a faculty member. Um, and so this goes back, I, I really believe, and I, this, this um, is conjecture, but I think this goes back to this idea of confidence that you probably have some, some people that go through the whole process from beginning PhD student to graduating, and maybe they never get the personal touches they needed. And so they end up graduating, you know, but they still don't ever feel competent. And what's interesting is those people that go on to become faculty who don't feel comp as competent as maybe they want to feel, they're less likely to engage in mentoring themselves because people that feel that withdraw from, again, organizational citizenship behavior because they just don't want to be, they don't want people to find out how not competent they are even though they're probably just fine. It's all, these are all just perceptions. So it's, it's one of those things, it's a gift that can keep on giving because you could become a faculty member that then withdraws from mentoring relationships because they're worried about not being competent enough. And then it just continues the cycle. So I really think this idea of just encouraging, uh, you know, um, faculty advisors to be more present for their students and then encouraging stronger student cohorts like you're talking about and then also encouraging mentoring networks where you have multiple faculty that are support that are around to support you. I mean, I think one of my biggest lessons from grad school is, as you know, Dr. Stebbin, an amazing faculty advisor, can't be everywhere and everyone all at once. Like you really need. I I was very blessed and fortunate to have a number of faculty that I could reach out to, uh, you know, for advice and counsel. I mean, uh, you know, it took between Natalie's advice, Nicole's advice, and and you know, Matt Sauchek, I'll throw him in there too. There were three faculty that helped really put this together for me to get the paper out that you're, that we're looking at today. So, I mean, I think being able to have those networks is really important, but it's important, I think, through the whole life cycle of researchers that we need to make sure that we're making people feel confident so that when they go on and be mentors later, they're 
they're paying that back and really being there for their for their students. You know, you've you've said like eight things, and I wish we had another hour because I've got all the comments in the world, but I'm just gonna narrow them down to a couple of things. Sure. Um, so I feel like we should all continue to be best friends electronically or digitally and in life, because I feel like we could, there's so many things that could come out of this. So so the first thing is the student cohorts, obviously, for many reasons, make sense. And, and I feel like back to your point around, you know, the mentor said do one thing and the, the peer said do another. And in that case, because they had that relationship, there was that trust and that vulnerability and that courage to go against their mentor because okay. of the relationships they had. Um, it reminds me of this book, Relationship Rich Education, where it talks about making a relationship web instead of these individual, so like less maybe structured mentoring programs and really encouraging people to create their web. 20 years ago, it was, you know, find your village. I've always said to students, find your people. And you only really need like eight, you don't need 80 people. But, mm-hmm. but in that, the thing that that's beneficial really for departments and faculty members is that it's scalable. So you don't have to meet with 15 different students. You can like flow in and out and connect less often, but still trust that the student is still supported because you may know their system and who they're connected to. So maybe it's like a faculty member, but it's also like a student affairs person or somebody in advising or, you know, somebody in athletics or, and when I think about that concept, it, it, to me, it feels like it satisfies both needs because sometimes your mentor is going to be wrong or they're not going to feel vulnerable enough to say what they actually want to say. And so if you're getting perspectives from different people within your relationship web, then you feel like you're better equipped to make the decisions that you need to make that are best for you. Whereas if you're just going to like the, the sage on the stage and that you're tr- entrusting that person to be right and to know you. And that's a lot of a lot of pressure and a lot of weight on on one person, right? Yeah. I also, I also think just as a faculty member, I hate to say it like this, but there are so many, I think, invisible tasks that we have that people don't see. They think, oh, you just teach and, you know, write some article, you know, and I'm just like the things I do just to teach or just to, to, to like the administrative work could keep someone busy for 40 hours a week, you know, and I, I feel like this is, is very helpful for all in that we get the things that we need, but we're also kind of protecting ourselves. Um, some of the mentors, some of the mentees, we're like protecting ourselves from like leaving it all on one person. Mm-hmm. It then transcends to what we talk about in leadership, the, the ideas and like the things that we're running into are getting more and more complex. And so what we've always done, that's not always going to solve our problem. And so it kind of it's like this weird thing that like the faculty mentoring piece kind of mirrors kind of going back to faculty members as leaders, it mirrors what we're talking to leadership leaders about and is, is valuable and beneficial in both spaces. So I'm going to stop there because I do have more, but I'm going to pause there because I feel like Jonathan, you want to say some things. Oh, well, you know, I think there was something that, uh, something that you said that just reminded me of something. So in my PhD program, one of the things that they did that really made me happy, um, and I was just so 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 proud of them for doing this, is they 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 really tried to formalize a peer mentoring program uh, for for where senior more senior students would uh, take on uh, new students coming into the program, and and yeah, it was that was so valuable uh, for me. It was valuable, um, and for like I, I know like it just it, it helps it does help take some of the burden away from faculty in the sense that you know you know one of my peer mentors. 
you know, I ended up spending an hour and a half with them outside of a coffee shop, mapping out their, you know, their conceptual models and planning out a few of the studies for their, 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 their dissertation and things like that. And, and, you know, we didn't come up with anything like dramatically new or, 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 you know, something that they hadn't already discussed, but it just was enough of a conversation that it pulled them off the ledge a little bit, it calmed them down and made them feel better about what they were doing. And they're like, okay, yes, this does make sense. And it was just one of those things where it made sense before I ever sat in the chair and talked to them about it. They really just needed someone to talk to. But faculty can't always throw an hour and a half into a conversation like that. It's just not feasible, you know. Um, so especially if you're on like a research appointment and a teaching appointment and at a school like UF, also maybe even like an extension appointment, you know. So it's uh, there's always a lot to juggle there. So that's why having networks built in structurally into PhD programs, I think, is so important. And and as I talked to graduate students all across campus. Uh, and again, in my experience, again, limited to, you know, University of Florida, you know, R1, AAU, you know, big school. Uh, but, you know, the, the students that had cohorts that they could count on were just in such better shape, even if they described nightmare scenarios about their faculty advisor. Uh, you know, and so I think uh, if, if I had had more time as a student in that student organization, I would have been trying to push for Every one of the every member of our of our organization to go back into their departments and build peer peer mentoring programs, because uh, even though formalized mentoring programs aren't always as successful or effective as informal mentoring, it's most often it's going to be better than nothing. It's interesting. I mean, I, it seems that what you all found and what you've kind of observed is that some formal structure to these mentoring processes really really does move the needle. So as I was kind of mentioning, you know, at the beginning of the episode, just sharing a little bit of context around around our program and that, you know, with our uh, third year cohort, you know, there we've instituted this scholarship advisor program where they're pairing up uh, with faculty and starting to think about their dissertation ideas and, and what have you. You know, firsthand, I can say these have been great meetings, but like we're just kind of winging it, right? Like we we're doing the best we can based on what on the mentor-mentor uh, -mentor relationships we had when we were doc students back in the day, or just right. any type of coaching or mentor work that we've done kind of in between. I guess the question is, as you're, you've, you've definitely, again, identified this like formal structure can, can get things, can get people thinking about it more explicitly, you know, like what advice would you give to doctoral students and faculty advisors about maximizing these types of meetings or peer, you know, the peer mentorship, like what a great model. Um, that might be something I, we institute as well. Like what, what are the most important topics to cover? Like what can faculty and students do better in these mentoring relationships? Wow. Okay. So again, a lot to impact there. I will, um, I do want to give a, a shout out to an organization it's called Simmer. And I always, I wrote it down because I always actually forget the acronym. It's the Center for the Improvement of Mentored Experiences of Research. So this is an organization that's been trying really hard to to, to they have a, a big train the trainer program and they and they're, they're um, they they came out of the University of Wisconsin I think they're their own shop now um, but essentially they've been going around to universities trying to train people to teach others how to mentor because mentoring is a skill you can get better at it there 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 are proven uh, techniques that you can practice that would make you more effective so um, I think that. You know, structurally, one of the things that universities should be doing, and, and I'm going to start at this big place and then go down to the more narrow, like specifically students and faculty. I think structurally, higher education needs to change how important mentoring is to 
everything that we do. Uh, you know, I mean, I've read, for example, and, you know, I don't want to, you know, throw too much shade at UF. I love UF. I'm a triple gator, you know, but, uh, you know, for I read the, the tenure and promotion guidelines and, and, and these huge these huge documents, they don't even really mention mentoring. It's kind of lumped into teaching, you know, and so and, and so there are there are people within UF that are really trying to change the culture there. And, I'm, you know, and now that I'm back into administration, I'm hoping to be a part of that. But I think it's so important to structurally make mentoring more important. I mean, the whole the whole concept of the Western PhD, you know, coming out of, you know, when it was developed at the, you know, University of Berlin back in the 1800s is this idea of, you know, apprenticeship, like that relationship is so fundamental to, to everything that we're doing. So I think there just needs to be more structural emphasis put on how important that is. And that'll make people take, you know, put a little bit more effort into it. So I think that's this one broad thing that I always want to talk about more narrowly. I think you know, this is, you know, there's things that the faculty can do and there's things that the student can do. So there's this whole area that, that Simmer has been talking about, this idea of mentoring up, you know, that there's things that you can do as a, as a student to make sure that you have, you know, when you come in and you're meeting with your advisor, have an agenda, you know, come structure, you know, set up regular meetings, like be proactive about setting up those meetings, have very specific questions. When you ask those questions, and you get feedback from your advisor. Don't just not ever do anything with that feedback, take it back to your work, do something with it and come back having learned something with new questions. So, I think that's a big thing on the student side is it's an active process. You can't just be a passenger, right? In a PhD program, you're the, you know, you're the captain of the ship. You know, the, the faculty advisor as who's being a good mentor is just guiding, you know, there to guide you, but you're the one driving the ship. Uh, so that's what I would say on the student side. On the faculty side, honestly, I would just say, show up. You know, I think that that's really the big first step is, you know, like, set up regular appointments with your students. Some students will need a lot more time. Other students will be fine being more independent. So you kind of got to get a feel for that, but just set up regular meetings and be present. And then try to make what I just said, try to make sure that students are doing that. What I just said, you know, hold the students accountable, make sure that they're taking use of your time in a good way. And I, I mean, even just that bare minimum, you know, I think is enough. Like we talk about all the different things that, you know, universities are trying to do now, like individual development programs and thinking about the future. What do you want to do with your career? And let's create a, a, a plan on paper for five years, what your plan's going to be. I don't even think you have to get that complicated. I think you just have to have conversations and then, you know, really actively listen to what people are saying and then provide your professional feedback as best as you can. Uh, and if you find that you're advising a student, that you know you don't know the answers. That's okay. Just try to find the per like try to help them find where they need to go next to get the answers that they need, uh, and not to take it personally that you're that you aren't the expert of everything that you don't have the answer. Don't take that personally. Find a way to get them to where they need to go. So, I mean, that's like my baseline advice there. So yeah, just show up. The, the way you said it, it sounds so simple, right? And it's like, just kind of like be there. And, and you know, but it, it makes me think about, you know, digging into like faculty student relationships. And, and I granted, I mostly look at the undergrad level and there's a definite difference between undergrad and grad, but some of it is um, based around, like we talked about earlier, identities. Like I've been been doing some reading and, you know, stumbled across this, like this, uh, this fact that like Hispanic and Chicano Chicano students feel they they value faculty more, meaning they respect the position more, but mm -hmm. they're less likely to interact. But when they do interact, they have great um, 
they have great experiences. And the big thing that it always comes back to is, is frequency. Like the quality is there, but the frequency is not just like naturally there. So when you're like, you know, show up for those spaces, it, it it's more impactful than I feel like folks realize. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I also think about on the, on the flip side as a faculty member, you know, we're always getting asked to do other duties as assigned and, and it feels like an additional thing. And so it's simple, but it's also like we're in a heavily reward-based system and there's no reward for that unless we're in a formal program or a formal process. I also think too, like I am a, I like the caring teacher philosophy. So I try to balance care for my students and accountability and I'm, I'm still developing that skill. But I know that there are going to be students that are more drawn to me because I am a woman be, and, and they feel naturally in that space, like they're, they're going, they're going to want to come talk to me. And we know naturally that, that students are attracted to um, women, people of color, and are overwhelming them with those relationships when there should be some balance. And I guess the formal programs do help with that balance, but it, it makes me think about how it's surfacing issues that are in our structure. And until like we fix that structure, we're still going to kind of repeat ourselves no matter what the program looks like, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's just so powerful. I mean, so, and that's why it's all connected, right? So the decisions that you make as a department, how many people you're going to admit, like so what's the student to faculty ratio? I mean, if you're one faculty member and you're mentoring 15 to 20 graduate students, the quality of those relationships is going to deteriorate because it's just so hard to manage that and teaching four classes and, you know, you know, turning it, you know, writing papers and collaborating in research and writing grants. And I mean, so it's, you know, it's really important, I think, then when you think about all of academia to think about, like, I guess I go back to like, you know, Bowman and Deal's frames of like organizations, you know, and like the structure of organizations is really important to their success. And so I think that there are issues that challenge that, that really challenge faculty and faculty end up filling the gaps in so many different ways. And, and it really, it hurts them. And when it hurts them, ultimately it hurts the next generation of faculty too, because that's who they're responsible for, for training. Yeah, definitely. Wow. This has been such a great, great conversation. I really appreciate y'all imparting this knowledge you know, on us. And it's been really fun to look at so many different aspects of of the mentor and mentee relationship, and this one specifically around graduate education. Yeah, I wish we had more time <laughs> to chat about this. Jonathan, thank you so much for, for joining us today. We really, really appreciate your contribution to this study. And and hi to Natalie. Hopefully we'll get you next time. And just really helping us to understand better uh, mentorship and graduate leadership education. So wish you the best uh, end of your semester and uh, start to the next semester. Okay, thank you so much. And yeah, anytime you guys want to bring me back to talk about mentoring, happy to do it. Awesome. Do you connect with leadership educators virtually? Please follow us on social media. Search the Leadership Educator Podcast on LinkedIn to find our page. And find us on Twitter at Lead Educator Pod for episode release information, show notes, and upcoming events. You can connect with me on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Leadership. And Lauren is at M-R-S-L-A-U-R-J-B. That's Miss Laura JB. You can find the episodes wherever podcasts are available. We also encourage you to please subscribe at theleadershipeducator.com and rate us five stars as the more you rate us, the easier it is for others to find us. We'd like to thank the James M. Cox Jr. Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership within the Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia. The support was facilitated by Dr. Keith Herndon, William S. Morris Chair in News Strategy and Management. 
And our wonderful theme music was composed, performed, and mixed by Dr. Matt White, trumpeter, composer, and associate professor and chair of jazz studies at the University of South Carolina. Check him out at mattwhitejazz.com. Matt, thank you so much for sharing your musical genius with our audience. And finally, we are grateful for the support of two professional associations that are destinations for leadership educators, the Association of Leadership Educators and the International Leadership Association. ALE, which funded the start of the podcast, continues to promote our mission of continuing conversations with leadership professionals. Check out all that ALE has to offer at leadershipeducators.org. The global reach of the ILA has helped us to expand our listenership beyond our original borders. Check out the ILA's programs and resources at ilaglobalnetwork.org.